you're sitting at home, you've taken out your portable audio device or whatever it is you listen to these podcasts on, you've pressed the play button, and yes, the moment has arrived. Once again, we come to another one in our fantastic series of financial well-being what an introduction. podcasts. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> I just think we need to, you know, we've been doing this for a while now, and I think we need to big ourselves up a little bit. When I say ourselves, my name's David Lloyd, and I'm here with Chris Budd, Tom Morris, Chris and Tomo. Well, the Tom Morris. The Tom Morris. <laughs> Tomo, tell us about yourself, quickly. Quickly. Uh, Charter Financial Planner at Ovation Finance. Man who knows a lot about pensions, so say. Brilliant. Chris, quickly. Third on the bill, great. Um, <laughs> Ex-owner of uh, Ovation Finance, <laughs> author and business advisor to companies that want to become employee-owned. Ooh, that's that. And I'm just some bloke that waffles on. <laughs> right. <laughs> what have we got today? Well, today we're going to hear again from Neil Bage, another interview we did with him, this time giving some tips and insight into how our behaviours affect how we invest. Neil Bage. Now, we're going to talk a lot about Neil in this podcast, and rightly so, too. Well, he gets mentioned a lot because he does really interesting research about how we can really assess our attitude to investment risk. So rather than just assessing investment risk it's behaviors that affect investment risk as well he's got a really interesting tool that i'll tell you about uh, a bit later when i introduce him excellent looking forward to that interview i really enjoyed the last one with neil but before we move on to that it's time for some of our regular features and the first one is listeners questions something we've started to introduce recently we've actually had a question in from chris anchors our listener has yeah. sent a question <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> At Anchors43 on Twitter, and it's a pensions question. And I think, therefore, it's probably one best answered by our resident pensions expert, Tomo. Do you think any questions are going to come in for you, Chris? <laughs> Maybe we should rename this slot Ask Tomo. Do you think it'll end up being, um, he'll, he'll get his own spin-off show? You know, like like uh, Cheers and and, uh, and Friends used to have. Will Tomo get his own spin-off show? But the question is, will it be Frasier or will it be Joey? Uh, <laughs> only time will tell. So here's the question from Chris. Chris says, my question is on pensions. I accept that the age that I receive the state pension will increase, but why is the age I can take my personal DC pension linked to it, i.e. state pension age less 10 years? Why can't it be fixed at 55 years? My well-being, says Chris, will come from retiring early. Chris... I have some sympathy for you on this one. So it's currently proposed that from 2028, as is said in the question, the earliest you can get access to your personal pension will be 10 years before the state pension age. As you can imagine, as the state pension age increases... Which you know, it will, inevitably. Which it will. The, you know, the time in which you can get access to your pension will get later and later. I guess the government are thinking do you know what, we need people's pensions to last longer in retirement so they're not so reliant on the state. But it kind of flies in the face of the pensions and freedoms, really. Um, 55, you know, what's wrong with being able to access your, your pot then? I, I just can't understand. If, if you're trying to encourage people to invest into pensions, making that time when they can get it further and further away is a bit counterproductive. I take that point, but then again, the danger always is for those of us uh, who perhaps aren't as 
uh, have, don't have the same self-control that you might have in terms of not spending their money, is it not perhaps in our best interest to say, do you know what, you are going to need that when you're older, you might not think so now, and therefore we're just going to make you wait a little bit longer before you can spend it. Why introduce pension freedoms in the first place? Yeah, it's rather counter to all the direction of travel that all the other legislation has been coming in, hasn't yeah, it? I, I, yeah, to be quite frank. Um, so we don't really have an answer for Chris, and do we? Well, we're we, as I, mystified as he is. Legislation changes. That is a risk that we have to face. A way to counter this is to think about saving in other areas that aren't just your pension. Pensions are great, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, for the tax relief you get and the way it builds tax-free. But you could look at things like ISAs is another way of putting money away for that gap between you know, 55 and when you can get access to your pension. So there's many different ways that, that you could potentially retire early. So well, Here's another little conspiracy theory for you. I'm wondering if um, the government isn't trying to, or the Treasury maybe is the driver behind getting ISAs to be more popular than pensions in the future. Because if you look at their tax take, with pensions, they've got to give tax relief up front, and they get their tax back at the end. With ISAs, they don't give any tax relief. So for the Treasury, actually, ISAs are a far, far better bet. Well, not just the Treasury, politicians who think very much in the short term. So if you, if you think about it, well, you're not going to get your tax till the back end, which could be 30 years' time. Well, they're all going to be retired by then and not being voted in as politicians. They're thinking of the now and trying to increase the coffers offers right now so yeah maybe your conspiracy theory is so so your message is a good one tomo pensions are great but use other things too yeah a balance food for thought for chris anchors there i hope that's uh, dealt with that great uh, question question. chris thank you and now we need to hear more from our professor of parsimony Uh, (laughs) tight ass tomo uh very quickly fill you in tom took chris and ian out to lunch he recommended that they had a particular thing because he had a voucher for it and he was able to say he'd bought them lunch and it cost him virtually nothing. And it was very nice. And, and it was very always nice. got to stress. Exactly. And it started this. And yeah. it started this. And it start- Best lunch ever. Yeah, exactly. And it started what has become the most popular feature in these podcasts. It's my favourite. Yes, it's mine as well. The notion of Titus Tomo, good tips for saving money. So what have we had from our listeners this week? Well, first of all, we have um, a comment from Sarah, who is at not underscore so underscore witty. It seems a little bit harsh. You're doing yourself down there, Sarah. (laughs) Um, I posted a tweet which said that when I'm working from home, I have two main functions. One is working and the other is signing for packages for my 17-year-old daughter. (laughs) Sarah then tweeted, based on your earlier comment about your daughter's shopping, don't forget to return unwanted purchases. Even better, try them on before you buy. Has saved me thousands since I started doing it. That might seem really obvious, but actually, with with the growth of online shopping and Amazon, etc., that's actually a really good point. That is a very interesting point. I've got a couple of jumpers in my wardrobe at home that I bought online, and when they got there, they kind of fitted me, but if I was trying them on in the shop, I wouldn't have bought them. But having got them, I couldn't be bothered to send them back, so now they just sit there and I don't really wear them. We also had some tweets from at Deborah J. Hicks, who found herself in a cafe. I love this. She found herself in a cafe sitting next to two men who were sharing investment tips. Now, I don't know if these guys were experts or idiots, (laughs) but she was 
aghast at some of these things that they were saying to each other. One of them involved a pension fund in investing in an Icelandic igloo. <laughs> <laughs> that is a classic example of beware the man in the pub. <laughs> oh my goodness me. Icelandic igloos might turn out to be a really good investment, you never know. But what is the level of risk? And I don't just mean global warming. <laughs> um, but there's a really important point we want to get out for our listeners, okay? Which is that there's been a big rise in the number of pension scams that come from self-invested personal pensions, or SIPs for short. Which is what I have. Exactly. Now, you're invested in a portfolio that's appropriate to your risk, to your plan, and so forth. But there's a bit of a, a rising danger of scams where... People move into SIPs and invest in really, really high-risk areas. It might be something called a USIS, which is an authorised collective investment scheme, or it could just be a really dodgy investment. And there's been a rising tide of these things happening, and we just want to make people aware that if, the old adage, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, to be quite frank, I don't see how the vast majority, if not all, of the population, I don't see how they need those kind of investments. A straightforward, well-balanced portfolio is all someone will need. There are some horrible stories out there, so yeah, make sure it's regulated. If it smells funny, it probably is. If it doesn't feel right, look under the bonnet. Make sure your advisor is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Yeah. The usual sensible things that one should go through, yeah. as we've talked about in the previous podcast. The SIPs are great. SIPs are absolutely wonderful. Self-invested pensions, I think, the best thing that happened to pensions for decades. But that has got a dark side. Very, very small, but just people to, to be aware of it. Right, OK, enough of the support bill. Now we're on to the main event. What is this podcast? Tight-ass Tomo Tip. Well, I'm a man of integrity. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't lay claim to this one. Believe it or not, my colleague Chris forwarded this one on to me. Not this me. Chris. This Chris. Oh, oh did I? Yes, you did. Oh, God, what's coming? We have another Chris at Ovation, I'm, but this I'm Chris who sat now. in front of me <laughs> gave me a tip. And I couldn't believe it because, well, it has shown no interest in, in this petition. A generous man like me, you're worrying about tight ass tomo tips. Exactly. And I had a look around, and it's called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, Piwop or PWOP, P-I-W-O-P dot com. And the idea of this website is that if you're looking to buy something, you, you know, a TV, a fridge, that sort of thing, and you're not really happy with the price, you can set an alert so that it tells you when it it's up on sale somewhere for a certain price that you're happy to pay for it. Oh, that's good. So it does that sort of shopping around for you, which I think is great. On two fronts. Number one, you could save money. Number two, it might well be when the price alert comes up that you've got over making that purchase and actually that delayed consumption that we talked a couple of episodes about, you think, well, actually, I don't really need it anymore. So, yeah, Piwop, have a look. Yeah, couldn't believe Chris gave me a good tip. So, like I said, I won't lay claim to everything. So thank you. Thanks, Tomo. Really good tip as ever. Chris, it's time now for the main event, and it's your second interview with the fascinating Neil Bage. It is. Uh, so, Neil, just to remind everybody, Neil is the founder of a behavioural and risk profiling solution called Behavioural IQ, or BIQ for short. It's a bit of software that's currently being used by banks and large financial institutions and will be available to advisors later in the year. Uh, we're actually road testing it at Ovation, and we love it. Any advisors who want to register their interest can go to bi, that's B-E-I-Q, 
www.neilsmcgrath.com uh, and they can uh, put their details in there. So Neil is a really interesting guy. I've been doing a number of talks with him and uh, we've had a, quite a few beers and late nights chewing the fat over stuff. He's a really interesting chat. So let's hear my talk with Neil Beige. Neil, thank you ever so much for coming back on to our Financial Wellbeing Podcast. No, thank you. I'll be looking forward to it. We're going to have a chat about risk because you've got some really interesting ideas about um, how people can understand their own uh, attitude to investment risk. I I would just set the scene, if I may, with a very, very quick story of a client who came to see us. And uh, it was many years ago, and our our risk questioning then was quite simplistic. And we gave him a scale of one to um, six. It used to be one to five. But when you ask people for a scale of one to five, they always say three. three. Every time. <laughs> yep. And so he asked one to six where he would put himself, and he said, I don't know. What does everybody else say? Now, doesn't that set the scene for you to talk about risk for a while? What's your approach to investment risk and how people could understand themselves? You know, this is a little bit of a soapbox thing for me, I'm afraid. So if I do rant, please stop me. <laughs> I, I, I give you permission to shout, shut up, stop talking. Um, so I, I love this question, right? That because. That, I mean, gosh, that guy, what does everybody else do, is just testament to two things. It's, it's testament to he looked at the questionnaire and probably thought, you know what, oh, gosh, I, 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 this is dull. Do I need to do this? Yes, you do, really. And the other thing is the questions are so vague, typically, and so subjective that people don't know how to answer those questions. And I remember when we talked a, a few months back, we, we talked about this kind of know thyself and we talked a little bit about planning and your future self and stuff like that. And, you know, one of the biggest issues that we have is the way that we assess risk full stop. Now, what what we typically do, just to give this some context, what we typically do, and, and please, the stre- I stress that word typically, is the, the industry advisors will typically use um, what's called a attitude to risk questionnaire. And that questionnaire may have 10 questions. And we ask those people those questions. And at the end of the process, we come up with a typically a group that might be you are medium risk. You might come up with a number. You're a seven. And that is then used to map to an investment solution. Now, if you just use this method, and I stress the word just use this method, it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because it is only providing part of the picture. There is much more information that's needed to ensure that a person can identify their risk profile more accurately. And then in addition to this, to finish this off, in addition to this, the the other issue that your client may have experienced is the questions, all all ATR attitude to risk questions um, that that I've seen uh, are typically Subjective. The problem with asking somebody a subjective question is we're not testing the objectivity, of course, of their response. But behaviorally, our subjective biases really have a strong impact and an ability to mess with our objective judgments. Can you give us an example of subjective bias, Neil? Yeah. So if you take um, let's let's look at loss aversion as an example. Okay. now loss aversion in the truest academic sense of the phrase is a it's a cognitive bias so humans don't like losing the simplest way i describe loss aversion isn't in a financial context at all imagine and this is to your listeners just imagine and i would I would imagine at some point in your life you've misplaced your wallet or your purse 
And what happens when we do this and we look and we can't find it and then we start to panic and we start to get this gut-wrenching feeling of I've lost my wallet or my purse and it doesn't feel good. It actually feels quite horrid. Then eventually you find it. And the feeling you get when you find it is not equal to the feeling you had when you lost it. It's, otherwise, you'll be euphoric, pop open a bottle of champagne, get your friends around, throw a party and drink to the early hours of the morning. But we don't do that. We go, oh, OK, wow, thank God for that. I found my purse and move on. And that's kind of what loss aversion is. We, we overweight our feelings towards loss more than, than we do with an equivalent gain. So if you ask someone a question in a questionnaire that is kind of framed in in a way just just focusing on loss for example then that would that would elicit a different response to if the question was framed in a way where you're asking about losses and gains does that does that make sense it does it does yeah I, we always treat the questionnaire as the starting point no more no less, just the starting point. It gives us a, something to talk about in a, in, a, in a meeting. And it's the notes you make from that conversation that really matter. I wish everybody did, Chris. I really do. Okay, so, so I'm now going to take a deep breath before asking this next question and, and preparing myself for the onslaught of your reply. How do you feel then about when people go online what is called robo-advice and they answer three risk questions and then they're given a, an automated investment portfolio? What's your view on that, Neil? <laughs> I think that that's a that's what I would call a put Neil on the spot question. <laughs> um, gosh, do you know what? I I, I don't let let's be honest. I I've, I I'm not a fan. And it goes back to the uh, the the original thing I said that if you just ask people ten questions through an attitude to risk questionnaire, it doesn't paint. The, it's not providing the full picture. It's providing part of the picture. Asking three questions online in this kind of disembodied way. Is not on, it's asking, it's gathering even less of a small picture, if, if that makes sense. I think if they were being used as to inform, a, to inform a discussion, that's fine because then you can gather more intelligence. But when they are just being used and people's money is then being invested off the back of just three or two questions, I think, I, I, I don't think that's right. In our last podcast chat, Neil, you talked about, um, not being able to predict our future behavior. Presumably that's extremely relevant when it comes to uh, how uh, our attitude to investment risk. It is. It's absolutely, it's, it's crucial to it. Let's take an attitude to risk questionnaire. You know, let's, let, let me pick on one question that I, that I see in various guises across multiple questionnaires. And the, that question is, what would you do if your investment fell by 10%? Would you sell would you stay put? Would you put more money in? Blah, blah, blah. Now, you know what? This is, the simple fact is people have no idea what they would do until that exact scenario becomes a reality and they have to take a decision at that point in time. You can predict what you think you'll do, but your prediction and the future reality will be polar opposites you know what they might by chance align and it might all be fine but the reality is if you ask anybody to predict what they will what they want to do in the future um we can't do it we're not very good at doing it with, with any degree of accuracy and i think this inability to predict what our future self wants is 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 what we talked about when we when we chatted last time a few months back is it, it, it's what lies at the heart of why people are pretty poor at goal planning we, we've talked about what's wrong with current ways of measuring risk what can people do 
put the money under a mattress and hope for the best. Um, <laughs> now, what I... There that's you go, not, that's my grand's advice. <laughs> that's not investment <laughs> advice, folks. <laughs> yeah, there should be a disclaimer coming with that comment, shouldn't there? Past um, performance of money under the mattress is no guide to future performance of money under the mattress. <laughs> that's right, that's right. I love your phrase, Chris, this know thyself, because it is. I couldn't agree with it more. It's, it's a really poignant phrase to use with people. And answering 10, 5, 20 subjective questions on what you would do is not at all learning about thyself. It's it's answering questions that the person who is asking them is going to then use to try and do something clever with. And the reality is they tend to just use that to, to map to an investment solution. But we have a dilemma here, Neil, don't we? Because um, if you put your money under the mattress, it will lose its purchasing power because of inflation. In fact, if you put your money in the bank, it will lose purchasing power because of inflation and tax. So we, we, we have to take investment risk. We don't have any choice. We have to take investment risk virtually to, just to survive. So a lot of people are being forced to do something they might not necessarily be comfortable with. So how do they align the level of risk that they need to take, perhaps with a level of risk that they want to take in order to get any decent outcomes and, and a solid financial future you need to take some risk in order to get the, the growth that you need to get to the to where you want to get to but when you do that all i would suggest you do is when you go to, through that process is if you're so if you're being asked questions in a, an, an attitude to risk way make sure that it is at least a psychometric type of test you know that the questions are um, well-worded. They are often, what you don't realize is sometimes they may be repeated but worded very differently just to make sure that you really understand what you're answering. That's what a psychometric test should do. And it's a good way of capturing certain financial behaviors. But I also think, you know, this going back to the original podcast we, when we first talked, I think this just knowing thyself is really important. So, let me, let me ask you this question, right? And, and it's, it's, it's more rhetorical, I guess. If I go through an attitude to risk questionnaire and I answer the questions and I come out as, um, on a scale of one to 10, I come out as a seven. Then I go through a process and ask questions around loss aversion and they come out as completely averse to loss. In other words, as cautious as you can get. What do I do with that? Because in one element of the process, I think, and I'm only thinking that I'm high risk, I'm a seven, but my behavior is saying I'm really, really cautious. Now, that's not wrong, by the way. We see this quite a lot in our research that we do, that people's self, um, their self-perception of their risk, their, what, they, what they think is, is, is high, but actually when you test their behaviours, their behaviours are really sitting around the cautious point. And, and that's, that, that's, that's fine. This kind of plays to an element of willingness to take risk because what you could have, and, and, and use that example I've just given, you could have a, have a millionaire who hates losing money, but time, from time to time, they may take a measured risk. They may take a, a, a high risk investment because they can and they need to and they want to in order to achieve what they want to do. That doesn't negate their behavior, which is loss aversion. It doesn't negate the fact that during that journey, they may really feel uncomfortable because their behavior is always present. But understanding those two 
really helps when I am making risk-based decisions, and it really helps me understand where my willingness to take risk sits. Do you find that if people do know thyself, if they understand themselves, and if they have a bit of knowledge about how stock markets work, for example, that their risk increases or dis- decreases? <laughs> that's, that's quite interesting. So, so typically risk tolerance, if you like, so this psychometrically measured behavior, if you like, does remain relatively stable. What moves are the other behaviors as your personality develops as you, as you get older. But also key events in life can, can have an impact. You know, so if you think of that loss aversion and the, and the, the attitude to risk, if you like, on a, on a scale, one's a seven and one's a two, if you like, and you have a range in between, that range could fluctuate based on life events. So if you got divorced, if you lost your job, if you lost your house, you know, certain behaviors will change and will fluctuate with the moment in time. But there are certain ones which remain relatively stable through time. What about experience? So I've certainly come across people who do what everybody often does, go into the stock market at its peak because they're feeling confident, <laughs> get out when it's just crashed because they're scared, and then never go in again. Yep. And, and, and there are behaviors driving that, of course. That's not necessarily, you know, so loss aversion is a classic one that drives that behavior. And present bias, we talked about previously, drives that as well. So, you know, if you be interesting, those people who, who you know who have done that, if you tested them and you put them on that spectrum of where they sit where, between short term and long term and where, where they sit between highly loss averse and, and not so highly loss averse, it would be interesting to see where they sit. My my intuition tells me that they would probably sit more around the um, short term loss averse. And that's because whilst they may have the experience of investing in the stock market, each event brings to life those behaviors again. It's all about decisions. And one of the things that we're not good at is using our experience and looking back at our past experiences and really learning from them. We think, you know, we do to a certain extent. But of course, when we when we replay our past experiences, we can't replay every element of that past experience because else we'd need a brain the size of an aircraft hangar to store all that information. Do we also reduce the impact of our own wrong decision? Our own, our own, our own input to that decision. I'm just thinking yeah, of, of, yeah, we of do. I'm just thinking of the person who who um, invested at the top of the stock market, got out at the bottom, and walked away thinking that stock market that's dangerous, it's risky, isn't it? Not doing that again. Well, no, it was your behaviour that was wrong. Oh, that's right. And the problem with, with that, Chris, is in the future, if you said to that client t- 10 years hence, you know, oh, you should invest in the stock market, his response would be, oh, no, no, the stock market's not a very good place. It's and not it's for ba- me. That's it's, about, it's, yeah. it's based on misguided knowledge. You know, it's because he doesn't understand the full picture. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a great, great bit of um, research that was carried out by – it's a relatively new field in psychology. Um, the field is called neuro law, where – they are looking at how the brain works in relation to the legal system. And there was a great bit of research done with eyewitnesses on the st- who were put onto the stand. And they tested people, put them through a fake scenario of a, of a woman having her handbag stolen. And then three months later, six months later, 12 months later, they called the people in who'd witnessed exactly the same event and asked them to replay what had happened. And the difference between them was absolutely astonishing. And that's because in writing the event into our brain at the exact time it happened, the brain has to filter out 
superfluous information that it doesn't need in order to create a story. So therefore, when we recall a story in the future, it's not the full story and we artificially fill in the gaps. So when people are making a financial decision that years previously that made and there was a bad outcome, actually, they're only taking the kind of the surface information. Oh, I, I invest in the stock market. It wasn't very good. Therefore, I'm not going to do it again. Whereas actually what they need to do is try and find those gaps and, and figure out why. Why was it a bad experience? Did I do something or was it the stock market? So the lesson then that we can we can take from this is know thyself, accept responsibility, realize how your own actions have affected things in the past. And then we need to apply that to to the, to, to the plans for the future. And, and if that means that we need to take a bit of investment risk, do a bit of research, get some knowledge, apply that knowledge. That's right. Absolutely. And I think there's a there's another element I would add to that, Chris, which is, you know, when you're making a financial decision and it's a decision that you've made or, or a variation of a decision you've made previously, don't overly rely on the past experience don't just put, you know, don't think I've done it before, therefore never again. Sit down and reflect and be really, really honest with yourself when you reflect and say, is there something that I did that made that happen the way it happened? And if you can do that, and so it's part of the know thyself, if you can find that honesty in yourself to do that, what you will find inevitably are elements of your behavior that popped up, knocked you off track and then went and hit themselves back in your subconscious and allowed you to blame external forces, if you like, wrongly. So, you know, sit down, reflect, is this, was this me? And, and use that knowledge to make a better decision. That's great, Neil. Thank you so much. There's some really interesting stuff in there. Is there anything that you want to just mention about your own firm and stuff that you're doing before we finish? Yeah, so we... So suitable strategy. So we have a, a online solution that currently is um, available only through institutions. So it's not available to um, investors yet. It's something we're looking at in the future. And, and that's a system called Behavioral IQ. And what that does is it does everything we've talked about over these podcasts. It takes people through a series of interactive, um, gamified, fun, enjoyable, engaging questions that um, ask people about their behaviors. And at the end of it, tells gives people a, a, a financial personality report that says, this is who you are. It, it doesn't say it in such a way, by the way, but it kind of says, this is who you are. This is where you can trust your judgments. This is where you shouldn't trust your judgments. This is where you've got really good behaviors. These are the behaviors you should be aware of. Um, and we've been working on that for the last three years with a team of academics. It, it's, it's really, really fun and interesting stuff. And more, more to the point, Going back to the thing I first ever said to you, Chris, you know, I think it has the real ability to help people make better decisions and avoid those decisions that could be really harmful to them. And that, for me, is what gets me out of bed in the morning. Yeah, that's fantastic. Neil, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you again, Chris. Take care. Thanks. Great stuff as ever from Neil. Now, the thing that stuck out to me that I absolutely loved is the thing that he said there about everybody might say that they've got a moderate or indeed high attitude to risk when it comes to investing, but nobody's got a high attitude to losing money. Mm -hmm. So everybody says, yeah, I'll take risks. I'll take risks. Well, how's it going to feel like when you lost all your money? It's going to be absolutely dreadful. It's a little bit like 
buying a ticket in a raffle, not winning, and then saying, well, can I have my money back now, please? <laughs> <laughs> or to- do you know what? I do like a good tombola. Yes. I'm a sucker for a tombola. Yeah, yeah, you know you do your lottery that you talked about last podcast. I, I spend all my investment money on tombolas <laughs> at the Donkey Derby. Um, I... I- Predicting future behaviour is the is the area that I find really interesting because what that's what we're doing when we invest. We're saying, what am I going to feel like in the future? Well, you haven't got a clue. How will you feel when the stock market goes down by 20% is a question that is often asked by financial advisors. And the truthful answer is, I feel terrible. <laughs> well, the, but actually, that's great because you then feel terrible on my behalf because I don't follow the stock market. <laughs> <laughs> I just know Chris is looking after my money and by the end of the year, it's going to be all right. So that's another reason, actually, that you should employ a financial advisor <laughs> to feel terrible on your behalf. Never watch the stock market. Well, there's a point. If you're doing it yourself, I think it's really important to understand how you would react. And like I said, it's difficult. If you have an advisor... They will sit you down and almost chain you to, to your chair so you don't do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, they say when markets are, are making, you know, having a wobble, and you know, so what are you going to do? And it seems very counterintuitive, but we often say, well, nothing. So what do you mean to do nothing? The whole point is you ride it out and you can have that objective discussion, but I can it's remember, very um, difficult when, when it happens. I can remember being on, on uh, social media when the credit crunch happened and the markets went for a big time wobble. And somebody um, posted a tweet saying, I've just, oh, the markets are terrible. I've just taken 52 calls in the last three days from worried clients. And somebody tweeted back, really? I've had none. <laughs> because the clients were well trained to know markets go down and markets go up. Mm. Just on that predicting future behaviour, there's um, a lad that I used to coach quite a few years ago at cricket a te- when he was a teenager. And then he got into his 20s and uh, he was thinking about what job to get. I had a little chat with him for some advice. And he, I said, well, you know, what kind of career? And he said, you know what? I don't want a career. I just want to play cricket and have beer with my mates. And I'm not going to worry about a career. And then about 10 years later, I spoke to him. And again, he asked for a little bit of careers advice. And he said, um, you know, I'm not quite sure. I want to change my job because I'm not very happy. And I said... I didn't think you were fussed about a career. He said, yeah, I kind of regret that decision now. So making decisions about your future now is really dangerous. Mm. Get your options open as much as you can. Save money, put something away so that you've got options in the future. And the reality is that actually sometimes we think we're not taking a decision. So he probably thought he wasn't taking a decision not to have a career. But actually by being passive, you actually are taking a decision. You're taking a decision not to do anything. And that in itself can have risks. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, just final point of what Neil said about being honest with yourself. You know, the amount of times I've spoken, well, I've tried the stock market. And that was really quite an interesting. I tried the stock market, but it's not for me. And it's actually being honest. It wasn't the stock market's fault. It was your behaviour at that time. How did you choose that investment? Was it right for you? You know, how did you react when it went down? Did you cash in all your chips right at the bottom? Really good point, because it's often not the stock market's fault. It's your own behaviour and what you did at that time's fault. It's being honest. Excellent. So, right, fascinating as ever to hear from Neil. And that is the end of our little mini-series of three podcasts when we're looking at investments. We're going to be back with you very soon when we're going to be dealing with another topic all around the issue of financial well-being. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. 
You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Money, so they say, is the root of all evil today. But if you ask for a rise, it's no surprise they're giving none away. <laughs>